This is The Other Side Australia with Damien Curry, the new podcast for the quiet Australian. G'day and welcome to the second edition of The Other Side Australia for 2021, episode 18. Happy New Year to those of you who missed our special earlier edition last weekend. I hope you had a great Christmas and holiday season. In the program this week... Whether you are on the right or on the left, a Democrat or a Republican, there is never a justification for violence. Donald Trump impeached again by the Democrats in yet another act of empathy and healing from the left's main party, as the president makes it very clear to supporters that violence is not welcome in his movement. A prominent Australian infectious diseases expert says we should feel optimistic and good about the situation with COVID in Brisbane and that governments need to be careful of overreacting. Lockdowns are not proportional to the threat in our country at this stage, says the professor. More on that later. And Alexandra Marshall, our Aussie social media queen, will explain all about the clampdown on conservative voices on Twitter this week and raises anti-competitive behaviour questions about big tech ganging up on Twitter competitors Parler and Gab. And we'll have some very big news about The Other Side Australia in just a second. Well, this is the 18th episode of The Other Side Australia, and it has been a great run so far. I'm super excited about what 2021 has in store. And as of next week, uh, I have to announce we will be changing format slightly. The show will be quite a bit shorter, as many of you have told us that you like the 20 to 30 minute format best. And here's the big news. We will be going to video. As much as I love being able to hide behind the microphone, and I loved my 10 years in radio much more than my time in TV, it's pretty clear we won't get traction on many platforms without video. And I'll just have to try to remember everything I learned from my four years in television. Now, you don't have to watch. Um, We will still be a show you can just listen to, and we'll still be on Apple and Spotify and all the podcast platforms. The show will be mainly a commentary program, and a kind of video podcast of podcasts with all the usual long sound bites and the summary approach that we tend to take in the first half of the show now. Alexandra Marshall and our North America expert Ray Rudowski will not be joining me on this show each week from now on. Uh, And that brings me to the second half of the announcement, uh, which is that there's more announcements to come. Uh, I'm going to be joining another completely new format show, which will be an interview show, and we'll be seeing Ellie and Ray on that show uh, as as monthly or fortnightly regulars. So we'll see a fair bit of them in the future. Uh, But I will have more to announce on that front later. These changes come about as we join the Discernible Group. Uh, The Discernible Group, for those of you who don't know it, uh, is the uh, creative brainchild of Matthew Wong, who we had on the program last week. Uh, Matthew uh, has set up a platform on Facebook and on uh, YouTube. Uh, it's a fantastic um, platform of various programs, um, and and we're going to be uh, working with them on production and other things. So uh, it's just the next step in our journey. Um, we will still be available on the Good Source platform. All of the discernible content is also on the Good Source platform, and will still be available on our regular 
the other side Australia platforms. So it's actually going to be hard not to find the show if you uh, if you really want to. And we will still be out very early every Friday morning. So absolutely nothing is really changing much if you want to go on listening to the show uh, every Friday morning as your as your Friday morning podcast. It'll just be a bit shorter. Um, and and we are continuing to grow. So please do subscribe. Uh, and join the Discernible group on Facebook and YouTube uh, as well. It's Discernible, spelt with an A. That's uh, Discernable, not Discernible. There are two ways of spelling that word. I never knew that, but it's it's true. So I thought it might be a good idea before we get started today to just have a listen to what Donald Trump had to say in his latest address on Wednesday. Uh, This is the statement that was released just moments after the House of Representatives impeached him for inciting an insurrection against the United States government. Uh, This was issued as a videotape statement, so the statement was made before the impeachment, and in fact... The script of this statement was read out uh, by a Republican congressman in the House of Representatives. So it was all prepared and recorded beforehand. It was released afterwards. So without cutting too much into sound bites, I'm going to let most of it play out. Uh, You can make up your own mind, listen to the whole thing, and then we'll come back with our North America expert, Ray Rudowski, and have a little bit of a chat about it. Here's Donald Trump. My fellow Americans, I want to speak to you tonight about the troubling events of the past week. As I have said, the incursion of the U.S. Capitol struck at the very heart of our republic. It angered and appalled millions of Americans across the political spectrum. I want to be very clear. I unequivocally condemn the violence that we saw last week. Violence and vandalism have absolutely no place in our country and no place in our movement. Making America great again has always been about defending the rule of law, supporting the men and women of law enforcement, and upholding our nation's most sacred traditions and values. Mob violence goes against everything I believe in and everything our movement stands for. No true supporter of mine could ever endorse political violence. No true supporter of mine could ever disrespect law enforcement or our great American flag. No true supporter of mine could ever threaten or harass their fellow Americans. If you do any of these things, you are not supporting our movement. You are attacking it, and you are attacking our country. We cannot tolerate it. Tragically, over the course of the past year, Made so difficult because of COVID-19, we have seen political violence spiral out of control. We have seen too many riots, too many mobs, too many acts of intimidation and destruction. It must stop. Whether you are on the right or on the left, a Democrat or a Republican, there is never a justification for violence No excuses, no exceptions. America is a nation of laws. Those who engaged in the attacks last week will be brought to justice. 
Now I am asking everyone who has ever believed in our agenda to be thinking of ways to ease tensions, calm tempers, and help to promote peace in our country. There has been reporting that additional demonstrations are being planned in the coming days, both here in Washington and across the country. I have been briefed by the U.S. Secret Service on the potential threats. Every American deserves to have their voice heard in a respectful and peaceful way. That is your First Amendment right. But I cannot emphasize that there must be no violence, no law-breaking, and no vandalism of any kind. Everyone must follow our laws and obey the instructions of law enforcement. I have directed federal agencies to use all necessary resources to maintain order. In Washington, D.C., we are bringing in thousands of National Guard members to secure the city and ensure that a transition can occur safely and without incident. Like all of you, I was shocked and deeply saddened by the calamity at the Capitol last week. I want to thank the hundreds of millions of incredible American citizens who have responded to this moment with calm, moderation, and grace. We will get through this challenge just like we always do. President Trump then went on to make a few statements about freedom of speech and censorship. I also want to say a few words about the unprecedented assault on free speech we have seen in recent days. These are tense and difficult times. The efforts to censor, cancel, and blacklist our fellow citizens are wrong, and they are dangerous. What is needed now is for us to listen to one another, not to silence one another. All of us can choose by our actions to rise above the rancor and find common ground and shared purpose. We must focus on advancing the interests of the whole nation, delivering the miracle vaccines, defeating the pandemic, rebuilding the economy, protecting our national security, and upholding the rule of law. Today, I am calling on all Americans to overcome the passions of the moment and join together as one American people. Let us choose to move forward united for the good of our families, our communities, and our country. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. Right, and that was Donald Trump uh, speaking just a few hours before he recorded uh, this week's podcast um, in his latest statement to the people from the Oval Office, uh, a more formal setting for the statement this time, much more strong rhetoric against any kind of violence, any kind of uh, protest that will involve violence. Joining me now, our man on North America, Ray Rudowski. Ray, uh, good to have you on. Thanks for coming on and Happy New Year, mate. Happy New Year, mate. Um, let's just, just listening to what Trump said today, it's been quite a start to the year, of course. Uh, what is your take on his change of tone here? He's very clearly saying you don't represent me if you're being, if you're violent. Does he mean it? Is he sincere? Uh, or is this, uh, just happening because he's possibly, uh, going to be impeached? 
Well, he has been impeached, and he didn't mention that. He's also uh, on his way out, and uh, he didn't mention that. Um, so I think that the speech, I think, is really about trying to cover a few bases, uh, reaffirm that uh, he has said from the very beginning of this uh, that uh, he did not call for violence. He abhors violence. The party is the law and order party. So he's trying to distance himself from that. I think also with like less than a week to go before he actually does leave and the new administration takes hold, I think he wants to be remembered for his last words. And those last words are words of uh, unity and conciliation rather than reaffirming uh, his ongoing belief that the election was fraudulent, stolen, and there were huge irregularities. I think that message is for another time. I sense that as well. I felt like he was um, he's trying to protect his legacy here and he's trying to – someone's got into his ear and said, you know, think about your legacy. Think about how you handled this last week and the messages that you send during this last week uh, and don't damage the brand uh, any further. And he's probably starting to listen, yeah? He also uh, just returned from a trip to the completion of the, I believe it was the 450th mile of the wall, which was part of a campaign promise to build or improve the border wall to clamp down on illegal immigration. And so there was that message that he gave there where promise made, promise kept. And then he's returned and made that speech about we need to come together. This is a time for unity. I've never supported violence. I'm the law and order president, and um, I think we need to come together for that. So he's basically doing the, you know, these are my accomplishments. Um, that's that news conference yesterday, our time, uh, as we're talking now, uh, that was very much about here's the things that I achieved, I noticed. Uh, and then this today is him in the Oval Office behind the desk looking presidential, condemning any kind of violence and talking about law and order. So he's... He's going out with the imagery uh, and the language that he wants to, to go out on. I've never, ever felt that Trump really endorsed violence. He certainly encouraged his supporters to be very, to protest and to be very vocal and to get out in numbers. But I've never felt that he promoted violence. He may have uh, strategically refused to condemn it when he should have. And I think that was his biggest failing this week, uh, that he was just too slow to condemn violence and misread read the feeling. How did you feel after the uh, after the Capitol building storming? Uh, what was your take on that? Because we didn't talk last week. Well, I was frankly a little confused. Um, and I looked at this and thinking, this doesn't look like any Trump rally of the dozens that he's had over the last four years, which were all peaceful. You know, again, it gets into the idea that there's a lot of there's a lack of trust in media and there's a lot of trust, a lack of trust in how all of this uh, has been played out. And when you look at that, you start to think, what's this really all about? And it contributes to the suspicions that something is off about this whole thing. And then suddenly we see uh, Twitter banning um, the president for life. And that sparks people around the world who would otherwise be ambivalent to American politics. And it's like, oh, that's just Trump being Trump going, whoa, wait a second. You've got Angela Merkel, who grew up in the former East Germany, condemning this because of the excesses of the communist regime there. 
the vice president of the EU, who is a, a Czech citizen who grew up in communist Czechoslovakia, raising questions. Poland has now uh, introduced a law that um, will fine social media companies who uh, censor. And all of these countries, I think, that would have otherwise looked at this and just thought, ah, politics is politics, have now elevated this to a debate on big tech controlling governments and deciding who wins and loses elections. And that debate, I think, has moved this whole incident that occurred in the Capitol to a much bigger global discussion that may not have been otherwise uh, happening. Mm. I've got no sympathy for anybody who was involved in that storming of the Capitol. Uh, if you breach that line, you could be a terrorist. You could be somebody who's good. They don't know. The security guys in there don't know. You're entitled to be, you, you will be shot. And if you're killed, too bad. Uh, you know, you've crossed a line there that's just not crossable as far as I'm concerned. Um, well, there's never any excuse for any type of violence. Uh, and that, I think, has been at the cornerstone of part of this discussion. But it sparked a wider discussion, I think, on, you know, free speech and political freedoms. And what does that count? Uh, what does that encounter? You know, most Americans would be ignoring all of this stuff that's happening in Washington as just politics as usual. They should be talking about uh, how to manage COVID, how to reopen the economy, how to get businesses back in operation. And instead, they're looking at, let's impeach the president. Yeah. Um, and I think that normal Americans are looking at this and going, this doesn't make sense. Around so just, the just, world, they're going, holy crap, this doesn't yeah. make sense. Just to make a distinction there, I mean, we're talking about the hypocrisy of the United States as a nation in the world's eyes or in the eyes of tin pot dictatorships or big dictatorships, uh, which I don't see a moral equivalency. I don't think they come anywhere near the United States even now in terms of uh, of their, their right or their moral uh, high ground. Um, but uh, that's a separate kind of hypocrisy. The other hypocrisy is the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party, which we haven't addressed yet. Let's talk about that for a moment now. Because this is serious. If the nation's going to heal, uh, then the Democrats have got to change the way they operate. They've got to reflect. They've got to look at, at, at what they're doing. Because what's happening at the moment is the Republican Party are moving to the centre and they're making a more more um, uh, consistent and ethical sort of statements. Yet we're seeing Nancy Pelosi just amping up, ramping up the rhetoric like you wouldn't believe. Um into the absurd and overblowing the whole thing and ramping up the drama. So again, it's this political opportunism, ramp up the drama, sensationalize the media, lap that up. They follow suit. Uh, we all get really stressed out. Donald Trump is about to leave office in a week. Do you really think that going through an impeachment process is going to be something that will unite the nation? And while you may be getting rid of Trump, you can't get rid of the 75 million people who voted for him. Well, this brings up the, the thing that you see in a lot of um, conservative news stories, that this impeachment wasn't the impeachment of President Trump. It was the impeachment of 74, 75 million other people in the United States who voted for him. Yeah. Let's have a listen to one of the Republicans in the House of Representatives during the impeachment debate. This is the Republican House of Representatives leader, so the leader of the minority Republican group in the House of Representatives. This is Kevin 
McCarthy. A vote to impeach would further divide this nation. A vote to impeach will further fan the flames of partisan division. Most Americans want neither inaction nor retribution. They want durable, bipartisan justice. That path is still available, but is not the path we are on today. That doesn't mean the president is free from fault. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. And that's the leader of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives, uh, Representative Kevin McCarthy of California. Now, McCarthy uh, doesn't support impeachment. He last week voted to overturn the election results. And he went on to say that Donald Trump has to accept his share of responsibility. He has to quell the brewing unrest and ensure that President elect Biden is able to successfully begin his term. Ray, where is Biden on all this? And I mean, I don't see from him any kind of leadership of healing or empathy. Joe Biden, if he's going to be true to his word as being the the uniter, should have or should be coming out and condemning the actions of his party for taking these measures when for the average American, just seems completely unnecessary. Like, it's a waste of time. It diminishes the public's trust in the Congress. The Democrats have been banging on about how much damage Trump has been doing to the institutions of the state uh, and the norms of a good functioning democracy when all they do, you know, they tried to do the Russia inquiry. It was it was built on the most flimsy uh, premise. They tried to do, they went through the first impeachment um, with the Ukraine thing, which you could argue was a diversionary tactic to get the spotlight off Biden's diddling in Ukraine. Um, all of this is infuriating to me because here you've got a party that is absolutely operating to destroy and to manipulate and to politically opportunistically take advantage of every little thing they can take advantage of um, and then turn around and 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 say, oh, you know, but look at this orange man who's who's damaging our society and damaging our institutions. It's it's a level of hypocrisy that even I'm astounded by from the left, and I've seen a lot of hypocrisy from the left. Well, but looking at it from the, the standpoint of the voter, did those who voted for the Democrats or Republicans uh, for the president for Senate, for the House of Representatives, they actually vote to make this happen. Like, I don't ever remember seeing this as part of anyone's campaign. And yet suddenly the elected representatives are going ahead with this thing and it's creating tensions within communities, tensions within states, tensions within the country, and globally downgrading the United States brand as a moral beacon of free speech and democracy. And we need it. We need it now more than ever. Um, I'm sure that Russia and China are rubbing their hands together with glee. Ray Rudowski, thank you very much again for joining us. Thank you again. In criticising the Democrats and the hypocrisy uh, of their behaviour after the storming of the Capitol, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that the storming of the Capitol itself was an unconscionable and unacceptable act, 
And I don't want to lose sight of the fact that Donald Trump is also to blame for this. Um, we have to be fair. The Democrats certainly have created a culture over many years uh, in which this sort of anger and frustration uh, can emerge, and that's really as a result of woke identity politics type thinking, uh, the villainization of the ordinary person, uh, the elitist um, patronizing that we see in the media. Uh, there's a lot of blame that can be laid at the feet of the Democrats. But at the end of the day, Donald Trump simply did not do enough on the day to prevent the violence from occurring. And whether he, he did not explicitly uh, call for violence, certainly, um, but uh, he, he didn't do the opposite when he knew that violence could have easily arisen as it did. And one person that certainly cannot go without taking some of the responsibility is Rudy Giuliani. This is what Rudy Giuliani told the crowd on Wednesday before the riot. If they ran such a clean election, they'd have you come in and look at the paper ballots. Who hides evidence? Criminals hide evidence, not honest people. So over the next 10 days, we get to see the machines that are crooked, the ballots that are fraudulent, and if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So, let's have trial by combat. Let's have trial. Argue there's any ambiguity there in terms of a call to physical violence. Now, this was Giuliani on Wednesday before the riots outside the Capitol, speaking to the protesters, the larger group of protesters, not the smaller group that were assembled right outside the Capitol building. I'm not sure whether they could have heard him, but the overall sentiment and vibe of the thing, to quote the council again, uh, is that there is very much a sense that, that, that there's a call for violence going on generally. And if what we're hearing about what might occur in the next few days in capital cities all over America from the FBI is true, uh, then that mood is certainly very much there among the people. The issue is that everybody is still quite annoyed. Giuliani continues to make very credible claims. They sound credible. It's very hard for the ordinary person, for us, for anybody to really know whether these claims are valid because it is hard to get specific evidence and take that through the courts. And just saying it didn't work out in the courts doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, but when you've got state legislatures and Republican governors and Republican state leaders and in, in, in the congresses of, of states saying, sorry, that's it, game over, here are the Electoral College votes, we're not going to entertain any of these criticisms and there wasn't fraud on a level that we can see. You just have to get to a point where you say, okay, that's it. There may have been a terrible injustice done here, but we can't prove it and we have to move on. And that's sad and it's it's upsetting, of course, if you're a supporter of Donald Trump or even if you don't like Donald Trump as a human being terribly much, but you support his views uh, as I do, uh, and some of his policies as I do, it's annoying, it's frustrating as a conservative or a liberal or a classical liberal or a libertarian to lose the election like this to a Democratic Party that are just awful. 
um, at the moment. But there comes a point where you've just got to accept loss and you've got to accept that whatever the rules of the game were, even if the rules of the game were bad or the game was rigged, we'd lost. And we haven't been able to prove the rigging or the, the, the problems with it. So uh, American conservatives and American uh, classical liberals and Republicans, I feel for you, I sympathize with you, uh, but I think you've got to be careful not to lose the war just because you won't accept defeat in this particular battle. We live to fight another day. Uh, you have the support of conservatives all around the world, classical liberals all around the world that want to see America succeed uh, all your allies, like Australia and other countries, we're right behind you. Uh, we support you, and we hope that uh, we will eventually win the war if, in fact, we have lost uh, this battle. And I use those military metaphors as metaphors, okay? We're not talking about violence here or acts of violence. We're talking about the system, the peaceful system of political process and rule of law. That's what we've got to use to change uh, the thinking and move the needle uh, in America in terms of public opinion. Uh, so that we just never have a situation like this again. And and yes, I think you should keep campaigning for clarity around your electoral system and for electoral reform. There is something smelly here. Uh, and whether, you know, even though we can't legally prove it in courts of law and we can't get, you know, can't prove it in this particular case, uh, it's really got to be looked at and it's got to be pursued. So let's channel our energy to that, getting the game cleaned up, and then we can win it uh, appropriately and in an appropriate way. It's confusing times, lots of information to try to wade through, and uh, I spend a lot of time doing it, and I still don't seem to get a lot more clarity uh, than the average person. So it is it is tough, folks. We've just got to hang on uh, and be kind to each other as we muddle our way through it all. Um, one of my favorite commentators who I think nails this question of the hypocrisy coming from the left at the moment uh, in relation to the BLM uh, riots versus the Capitol riots. And there are differences. I mean, the Capitol, laying siege to the Capitol building is is a very, is a capital offence in a sense, because you, you could be terrorist, you're going into a, a very important government building with the elective representatives. It's symbolic of an attack on the very heart of the nation and the people of the country. So it's very, very serious. But so too were the BLM riots, which went on for months. Uh, and there were uh, 220 violent um, um, incidents, 220 violent protests out of about 2,000 protests. So no, they weren't all violent, but there was a significant number of them and they were not put down. They were ignored by all of the authorities. So one of my favourite commentators is Steve Hilton from Fox News, uh, who I think is a pretty balanced guy and has really put together an excellent uh, editorial on this issue. Wednesday was horrific enough. But unbelievably, since then, the Democrats and their Silicon Valley allies somehow have managed to make it worse. It started with a mob laying siege to the Capitol, totally abhorrent, unequivocally condemned. Now, it's some of the most powerful people in the world laying siege to you. Pelosi with her spiteful, vindictive, vengeful rage, Jeff Bezos, Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, Apples, Tim Cook with their unprincipled, menacing, incendiary purge. These people say they want to unite the country. On Wednesday, the country was united in utterly condemning the violence and chaos in the Capitol riot. Now, thanks to Pelosi, Bezos, Dorsey, Zuckerberg and Cook, everyone's back in their tribal camps, 
Nice work, guys. The establishment may think they can get rid of Trump, but they can't get rid of the 75 million Americans who voted for him. They can't get rid of the multiracial working class coalition he assembled, the movement he built, the ideas he championed. And right now, after all that's happened, those people, that movement, who believe in these ideas, they still back Trump. We have to understand why. Trump's critics say he has no empathy. As is so often the case, they are guilty of the exact same thing they accuse others of. Some of us reject violence, hate, intolerance, disrespect unconditionally. It's all wrong, wherever it comes from and whoever it's aimed at. But that is not the standard followed by the left, by the establishment, by the media. Yes, they condemn violence when it's committed by people they despise, but they not only excuse hate, intolerance and disrespect, they practice it on a daily basis. That's Steve Hilton from Fox News on his uh, regular Sunday night program. Hilton then went on to play his audience a couple of sound bites. One, the first one is from CNN, the second from MSNBC. Clarity means seeing things not just from your point of view, but from others. Listen to this. We know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that a riot is a language of the unheard. Civil rights revolutionary Martin Luther King Jr. once said, but in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? I agree with that. And I tried to do that with the racial justice protest this summer. Of course, we condemned the violence and destruction that cost at least 30 people their lives. But we didn't run around saying that everyone who supported BLM, who advocated for BLM, who gave a platform to BLM and its ideas, who, in the approved term, enabled BLM. We didn't say all those people had blood on their hands because 30 people died. Major changes to the voting system with the virus as pretext, but long pushed by Democrats for partisan ends, rushed through in certain battleground states in ways that clearly violate the Constitution. Those changes have undermined confidence in our elections. That is real. You won't make it go away by calling it Trump's big lie and Fox News propaganda. But no one on CNN or MSNBC or anywhere else on the left tries to see it from anyone else's point of view. Instead, it's all hyperbolic rage from morning till night. Traitors, sedition. Trump supporters have blood on their hands. They complain about incendiary rhetoric, then spend all day spouting it. They say that anyone who questions the election incited actual violence. Does that mean all these statements? incited actual violence go to the hill today get up and please get up in the face of some congress people you know there needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there's unrest in our lives i just don't even know why there aren't uprisings all over the country and maybe there will be the unrest in the streets which that democrat member of congress was calling for claimed at least 30 lives so is it right, is it reasonable to say she has blood on her hands? Of course not. So why did they all say that now? Because they've become so self-righteous, so sanctimonious, they've lost all self-awareness. That's Steve Hilton, a British political commentator and former political advisor. He hosts a show called The Next Revolution, which is a weekend current affairs show on Fox News. Well worth checking out. Good balanced stuff. Okay, well, coming up soon, we're going to be talking to our regular Alexandra Marshall. She's our social media expert. Alexandra will be telling us what's been going on on Twitter and Facebook and with all the censorship of conservative voices and people losing hundreds and hundreds of uh, followers, as I did this week. 
so some interesting stuff uh, with Alexandra coming up. Uh, we'll also be talking about personal attacks that she's had on her from uh, conservative, uh, sorry, from left-wing activists attacking conservatives. Uh, so look forward to that uh, conversation a little bit later on. But I thought we might move a little bit away from all of this stuff for a moment. Go to that other annoying thing for 2021, which is good old-fashioned COVID. Uh, the latest from Brisbane, the Courier-Mail newspaper reporting that health authorities are still trying to get in touch with uh, a quarter of the people who were staying at the Grand Chancellor, the former guests um, that were there. Uh, but they have, in fact, ruled out another lockdown of Brisbane because they're confident that they'll find them. Uh, Queensland recorded four new cases overnight, all of those in hotel quarantine, so none of them in the community. Um, the number of former hotel guests is now at 147, uh, revised down from 250. Uh, three quarters of those have been tracked down and none of the new cases were in the hotel grand chancellor, so uh, probably not the highly infectious uh, strain. Um, two of the new cases were from the United States and two were from South Africa. I'd like to just draw um, your attention to an excellent editorial by the Professor of Infectious Diseases from the Australian National University, ANU, Peter Collingen. Uh, Peter writes uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald that we need to be proportionate to the risk at the time, and that too often panic and isolationism seem to be playing major parts in headlines, uh, in decision-making, and in public opinion. He said that many prominent individuals made very dire predictions about what could happen in Australia, and most of them were wrong, uh, including recent warnings about Christmas and New Year uh, being super-spreading events in Sydney if there wasn't going to be a city-wide lockdown. He says that... Uh, We've got three COVID-19 clusters in Australia from recently introduced strains. There's the Avalon cluster, which started in early December. Uh, more than 140 cases now appears to be extinguishing. That's the northern northern beaches area in New South Wales, north of Sydney. Uh, the more recent Barala cluster with 20 cases is also waning. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald uh, editorial says that uh, in Melbourne, a cluster associated with a restaurant with more than 30 cases appears to now be very well controlled. And uh, the professor says that these successes show that current interventions and advice from health departments in New South Wales and Victoria have been effective at stopping the spread without any total lockdowns needing to be advocated or introduced. And so he describes the Brisbane lockdown that happened last weekend as surprising given that there was only a single new case associated with uh, a quarantine hotel leak. He, he says, we can control most of the clusters and most of the outbreaks with a combination of good testing, contact tracing, quarantining of close contacts, and limits on the size of uh, indoor events. Add to that good behavior. Um, and, and if we have people socially distancing, washing their hands, um, reducing the number of people they're coming in contact with in general. And if you want to add to that wearing a mask, then we're going to see uh, pretty solid control here. You can't compare Australia to the United States, in my humble opinion. 
because sorry, or to the United Kingdom, because in Australia, especially the United Kingdom, we have in Australia very dispersed population. Um, we have a lot of space. And most importantly, we don't have one of the things that epidemiologists have identified as the main spreader, and that is mass transit rail systems like the London Tube or the New York Subway um, or the Hong Kong MTR. Uh, these systems are compact. They move millions of people and bring millions of people in contact with one another, and they are just incredible at spreading uh, viruses. And we don't have big rail systems in Australia. We have medium-sized ones. So that's part of the reason why we haven't seen the spread. And the other obvious reason is that we are closed to the rest of the world, unlike the UK. Um, and that can't continue forever. We've got to try and hold out and hope that the vaccines are going to work and that we can open up to the rest of the world. And we are going to have to open up the rest of the world. Um, we definitely have to let Australians come home. I've been very explicit about that in the past. There is absolutely no valid excuse for not letting an Australian citizen return to Australia. If, you are fail if you're not doing that as a government, you are failing in one of your fundamental responsibilities. Set up camps and get people quarantined, but you cannot deny Australian citizens access to their own country. That is a, a, a blot on our society and our nation like has been never seen before, in my opinion. It's one of the worst things of all. I know it doesn't affect a lot of you because a lot of you don't have relatives overseas or you don't have jobs overseas like a lot of Australians do. I did live in as an expat for 20 years and I cannot underscore the importance of being able to come and go uh, as a citizen and to exert that actual right that you should have as a citizen. The government has no right to take from you and there's no place taking from you. And there's nobody that I know that is an expat or lives or has relatives overseas that doesn't share that opinion very, very strongly, even though as a, as a group, probably not as sizable as the general population. Um, so we just have to ask you for your support on that one um, if it's not affecting you. And this is the thing we've all got to remember. A lot of people with the Brisbane lockdown said, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, it's only a few days. What does that matter? Well, it does matter. It matters when you restrict people's liberty a lot. It's a very serious thing to do, and it may not affect you or me, and we might like having a day off work on Monday and all of that, but we probably don't have a small business that might be about to go bust and be employing people that we have to care about. And before you say, oh, don't worry about the economy, it's more than the economy. This is people's livelihoods and people's lives. It affects them on an emotional level, on a health level, uh, in many, many different ways. So it's not just about the economy, even though the economy is a very, very important thing and has a lot more to do with things than money. The economy is about how we how we use our resources. Um, and it's very important. It encompasses everything for the benefit of the of the society. How how do we use our resources and how do we allocate our resources? So let's um, just take a breath and remember that when we deprive people of their liberty, we are we have to look at it not from the perspective of the average person that probably won't be affected too much by having to stay at home for a weekend. We have to consider this as policymakers in government from the perspective of is this going to restrict the liberty of anybody to the extent that could cause them great harm or great inconvenience. And on that measure, you can't say that a three-day lockdown is no big deal if your wedding happened to be in that three days. If a relative happened to die and you wanted to go to a funeral in that three days. If you've got medical issues, personal issues, emergencies, 
or if you just want to express you're somebody who cares about liberty and wants to be able to express your liberty. Uh, it isn't okay for a government to take our liberty away, even just for three days. I'm sorry. Doesn't work, especially in this situation. If we had an Ebola outbreak and people were dropping dead left, right and center, okay, you know, you've got a real pandemic, you've got a real threat. We have got nothing like that here. This is a very, very manageable situation if governments are managing it properly and our health departments are being run properly and being managed properly. And that's the problem, I think. I don't think they are. And I think they're trying to cover up and prevent any political backlash if there happens to be a more serious outbreak than what we've seen so far. They're simply doing these, making these decisions to save their political neck. And until we stand up as the voters and say, okay, you're not going to be able to save your political neck if you keep locking us down, <laughs> then they'll change their tune and then they'll stop. But while they think we're all accepting it and we're all happy to accept it and we're all going to be compliant, they're never going to stop doing it. All right, Peter Collingnan, uh, the Professor of Infectious Diseases, whose editorial and opinion piece I just uh, re referenced that was in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, a couple of days ago, he appeared on Sky News uh, and was talking today about how he believed that uh, the Brisbane situation is actually very, very good news. Here's Professor of Infectious Diseases from ANU, Dr Peter Collingham. In some ways, there's good news about Brisbane. There haven't been all that many cases. I mean, even though that Lena and her spouse were in contact with lots of others, so far, it hasn't been highly transmissible. So today, um, with this particular strain, it hasn't behaved differently to a lot of other strains, whether they're from the USA, from India, um, or, you know, America somewhere. So, um, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see, and it'll take a full 14 days so that we go through a full incubation period before we know. But so far, it hasn't been as bad as some were expecting. We need to keep it in perspective. I mean, look at uh, regional New South Wales with over 3 million people. Um, for Since early December, there's probably been, you know, circulating virus in Sydney around that Avalon cluster in particular that got introduced from overseas. Yet there hasn't been any transmission into regional New South Wales that has caused ongoing transmission. There's been a few people that have gone there by plane, etc. But it hasn't caused a problem. And even when the people from Melbourne came up to Bermagui, that didn't cause any transmission there either. So look, there's always a risk. We'll have this risk continually because while we have some people coming overseas or a lot of people coming overseas and being in quarantine hotels, you will get some leaks. We need to minimise that, but you will get leaks. But so far, Australia has been very good at controlling this with contact tracing and testing. And this situation so far has not been any different. Um, you're behind the eight ball a bit if it takes a while to realise there's a problem. And I think that was the issue in Avalon. But, you know, they've been on top of it. As, and even in Adelaide, when there was that leak a couple of months ago, the contact tracing and testing was the thing that fixed that. The lockdown they did made no difference. They didn't find any more cases or prevent any more spread. And so far, that's been the case in Queensland as well. They've had very good contact tracing. All the people that should be isolated are, and it's under control. And you've got to remember this UK variant, it probably is more infectious, although we'll wait and see what happens in other countries where it's introduced. But the control is exactly the same. Most of the spread is by droplets. In other words, being close to people, particularly if they're sick and coughing. That's why we've got to keep people away who are sick until they're tested. And even when they're tested, you know what other viruses anyway. We need to keep physical distancing. We need crowds indoors to be kept out. 
We need people to be outside more than inside. All those things make a lot of difference along with, you know, washing our hands. All of that decreases our risk. And so far, uh, other than Melbourne, we've been very successful in winter. And there were a lot of factors with the Melbourne outbreak. Winter was one that, you know, contact tracing, untrained security guards, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that we don't think will be repeated. So I think we should be optimistic that we can keep control of this and keep it to low levels. That's infectious diseases physician Dr Peter Collingham from the Australian National University. And uh, he was speaking to Sky News Australia there. Okay, I want to just uh, advise everybody about some compulsory listening, and I'll put the link in our uh, program notes today. By compulsory listening, I mean highly, highly, highly recommended. I'd really like you to have a listen to it. It's the current episode of the Making Sense podcast with Sam Harris. Uh, I couldn't cut this podcast up and do it justice. Um, It is something you've just got to listen to from the beginning to the end. It's about 45 minutes. Sam speaks slowly, so you can listen at about 1.5 speed if you want to. But it is just a, uh, a very powerful analysis of the whole situation in the United States right now from a prominent New York neuroscientist. Uh, he is a neuroscientist. Um, he's an author. He's had this podcast for quite some time and been one of them. It is one of the most successful podcasts and most listened to podcasts in the world. If you don't know Sam Harris's work, uh, you'll enjoy it. It's um, it's challenging. It'll certainly uh, not um, be an easy cognitive journey for you. It's not going to uh, confirm your biases in any way. Uh, there'll be no confirmation bias going on. You're going to get challenged no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. Uh, we all get a good whack from uh, Sam in this particular uh, episode. And I think it's uh, it's that's what makes it such compelling listening and something that I really would like everybody to listen to. So Sam Harris... Uh, the Making Sense podcast, uh, the episode for uh, this week uh, being the the week of the uh, 11th to the 15th uh, of January. Uh, make sure you check that out. Links down in the uh, program notes. Now we are joined by Alexandra Marshall. Hello, Ali Melly. How are you this year? Happy New Year. Thank you for having me back. It's been quite a week or so for everything and everybody, but particularly a lot of craziness going on on Twitter. Um, Just fill us in on what you've been seeing uh, in the social media space in the past week. Well, after the events of Trump's election loss and the Capitol Hill protests, we have seen social media and Silicon Valley big tech in general empowered to begin silencing their political opposition. So big tech has engaged in possibly the largest censorship campaign in modern history where they have been systematically removing conservative voices from all of their platforms at the same time. So Twitter is probably the most famous example right now because they suspended Donald Trump's account. And the suspension of Donald Trump's account, while frightening considering he was a an elected leader of the free world and they didn't go to the trouble of removing, you know, the Chinese Communist Party's accounts, which were joking yesterday about uh, how they've emancipated women in their concentration camps. Like, they're not they're not um, removing people equally. But the real story is that they have been removing tens of thousands of conservative accounts for no reason at all aside from their politics. Now, these account suspensions have reached many 
Australian commentators and supporters in the community that lots of us know and admire. And the reason they're being given for their suspension is not violating Twitter rules. They're not being rude. They're not QAnon. They're not spamming the website. All they did was put a link to their Gab account. Uh, Gab is, of course, a rival social media platform to Twitter in the fear that they were going to be removed. And yeah, yeah, so... So the way to appease that fear is to remove them. Correct. So what we're really seeing here is anti-competitive behavior. Twitter knew, uh, and their market share has been falling off a cliff since they removed uh, Donald Trump. They realized pretty quickly that places like Parler and Gab were going to clean up all of their ex-users. And the first thing they did was to collude with AWS, which are Amazon's external service, to have Parler removed from their service. And the excuse they gave was that there was some uh, violent content on Parler. Now, if they're going to use that excuse to remove Parler from the AWS servers, one has to ask the question, how is Twitter still operating on the AWS servers? Considering that we've had four years of Antifa and BLM rioters posting calls to violent incitement on Twitter on accounts that have not yet been suspended. I don't think so, the double standard has ever been this blatant and and obvious, and I think it's impossible now for anyone to deny that there's a political bias of significant proportions occurring. Um, yes, we've got we've just, got the Demo- we've got the Democrats using social media as a way to remove any uh, political opposition to their policies to their office. It's absolutely frightening, and I'm guessing that the trade off for for this political power the Democrats have got is that there's nobody left to hold social media to the Section 230 immunity lawsuits that were coming and more seriously to the antitrust lawsuits that are coming because we've got Google, Facebook, Apple and Twitter colluding to remove people and organisations that compete with them. Do you think it is that they don't care now? That they think that, well, okay, the Democrats have got the House, they've got the Senate, uh, they've got the Presidency, the White House... We don't, we don't care anymore. Well, they're We're, not afraid. It was yeah. as soon as it happened, you could see the change. So Twitter used to, uh, used to be aware that it could be done for antitrust. And if you watch the the Senate hearings, you could see how worried Zuckerberg, who runs Facebook, was with these hearings. Now there is no fear that they are going to be held to account. And these are very serious crimes to commit. Antitrust is a major, a major criminal activity in the U.S. Parliament uh, is suing. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so Parler immediately launched court cases. They launched, I think it's two. One was against AWS directly, who have not only broken their contract with them. Allegedly. Um, but also have colluded with other organizations against them. Allegedly. But I'm pretty sure they expanded or, or are going to expand their court case to include uh, Twitter, Google, and Apple. Um, Google and Apple, of course, removed their app from the App Store for right. no reason. So AWS so, or- is, just to be clear for everybody, as you said before, AWS is Amazon. That is the... Yes. Uh, external server uh, network of Amazon. Um, and so it, it's it's critical. I mean, Parler can't operate elsewhere. What about Gab, Ali? How dependent are Gab, the other alternative so, to Twitter, how dependent are they on uh, these platforms? What's interesting, about, what's interesting about Gab is I joined about three or four years ago. And when Gab started up in opposition to Twitter, they tried to destroy them. And they went really, uh, really, really hard um, against Gab with a whole propaganda campaign against them. And so Gab built their own servers. They own their own hardware. So the only way for Gab to go, Gab to go offline is if um, a server hosting center 
which is a service like a phone line, were to cut them off. And that would also be a, a breach of the law. You can't just cut services off. So Gab is more secure. Um, they right. So they're not sitting on top on... of the cloud. They're not sitting on top of the AWS cloud. Oh, it's um, all cloud service, but it's their own cloud. Y- yes, but it's um, not AWS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's not AWS. And the thing with Gab is they're a bit slow at the moment because they are physically installing new computers, and this takes time. Uh, but yes, Gab is far more secure than Parler. Parler, we have to hope they win the court case because if big companies can collude to remove your business, there is nothing to stop them now from coming after any business run by or operated within a conservative movement uh, to silence them. So it's Nothing. important to understand that this is an antitrust issue. It's a freedom of of uh, property rights and 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 business issue, not a, so much a free speech issue. Um, but it is it, it does reflect concerns that people are having in the free speech space, right? Now I lost about five hundred followers, so about ten percent of my followers on Twitter last week. I assume that. Uh, you know, about 50 of those are very conservative people who left me because I uh, criticized Trump. Uh, I think I lost um, probably, you know, the rest due to either people being kicked off, my followers being kicked off themselves, um, or Twitter actually removing people. To what extent do you think the mix is there of, of people voluntarily saying, I've had it with Twitter and I'm going off to Gab or Parler? Uh, closing their Twitter account so we see our followers go down, or uh, Twitter actually coming in and closing those accounts? Well, I have a bigger sample size to you, so I lost 2.4 or 5,000 followers. Now, I follow back people who follow me, which don't, means that Don't I- brag, Alexandra. This is not a time for bragging. No, no, no. So all I'm trying to say is because I follow back, <laughs> no, no. I can watch a different ratio play out. So yeah, yeah. if someone unfollows me, my following, like people I follow, don't yeah. change. Right? Right. When people are suspended temporarily or permanently, the, my following count goes down. So I'm watching my ratio from followers to following has remained the same. So I've been unfollowing people, their accounts have been suspended uh, across the board. So I can pretty much guarantee that the majority of what's happening are people being suspended or leaving. Judging by the conversation I'm seeing, over on Gab, and people are emailing me directly to tell me what happened. Most of them have been kicked off. They haven't left voluntarily. So maybe 80% of people were kicked off. Um, And the other 20% left because they were just got the shits with the idea that this was a censorship platform. Um, It's pretty significant because most of the people being kicked off are being kicked off for no reason at all, or for anti-competition reasons. And I've had all of the blue tick journalist media in melbourne come after me launching campaigns to try and have me removed from twitter and i mean vicious campaigns okay let's talk about this for a while because this is important and i think these people need to understand that um this kind of sort of heavy-handed bullying uh stuff uh which which really if you took that into the physical world that would be uh sort of a um you know a, a, a you could start a protection racket almost around this sort of ganging up um, it's 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 organised crime sort of behaviour, and I think they don't see it that way. They see themselves as morally virtuous crusaders in a political war uh, coming from this morally virtuous left, rather than seeing themselves as gang bullies who actually might be. And some of these guys are journalists, I understand, right? So they could be very much at risk of defamation writs 
and putting themselves seriously at risk. And there wouldn't be much sympathy from the courts, given that they're journalists. They're trained journalists, and they ought to know better. So what what is your take on... Uh, first of all, just tell us what's happening, what you're experiencing, and who who you think is behind it. Well, the first and most serious thing that I've noticed is as soon as... Twitter made it acceptable to persecute conservatives, which is what they did by their mass removal of accounts. All of their left-wing followers have gone out basically lynching people online. They have become empowered and brutal. They send threats. They harass people. I've never seen it as bad um, as it is at the moment. The second thing that happened is that some of these crowds have been led by uh, journalists and other verified account holders who were involved with the activist movements like um, Sleeping Giants and the, and the Mad Effing Witches. But also they've got a thing called Deplatform Hate, which is another side campaign. And so, for example, for me, they tried to include me in the Deplatform Hate campaign and called all their rallies to report all of my tweets to try and get me removed from Twitter. And Jeez. so I've had quite literally thousands of these horrific messages sent to me by these people whose only goal is to have me silenced. Um, including things like feminist indigenous authors who spent a good, you know, few days trying to discredit my ability of like my writing career and my position as a commentator online. I've had Melbourne journalists publicly calling me things like a whore and a fascist. And this is the sort of thing that we're talking about. People who hold positions of power, who have their verified accounts on these platforms, treating other users in their field like this and for me it's also it's more anti-competitive behavior what they are trying to do is erase their their um, commercial competition and there's no word from the hrc about this kind of behavior um it's particularly in regards to things like kevin rudd and, and malcolm turnbull have reignited their um, anti-murdoch campaign to try and get all conservative publications and think tanks removed from social media platforms so this is where we're at. It's a it's an all out war against anybody who thinks differently to the left wing narrative. Absolutely. Well, look, um, I think what these people have got to start to understand is that I mean you're being very kind talking about it in terms of being an anti competitive issue or an A Triple C issue. This is criminal bullying behaviour, and we need to call it out as such. Uh, it's criminal uh, by any standards um, that anybody would uh, care to bring to bear. And in fact, the left have promoted these laws and rules, uh, particularly for attacks on women. Um, so I, I, I find this uh, hypocrisy in the extreme, uh, and it really is time that we clamp down, and I've been very strong about clamping down on violence um, and clamping down on uh, threats of violence uh, in, in, in what we're, we're saying. I'm, I'm a free speech um, liberal. Uh, I know you're an absolutist when it comes to free speech. Um, just in that vein, Ellie, what, what is your view uh, of the limits? I mean, we, the question of whether Trump incited or Trump didn't incite, uh, I find it very hard to believe that he wasn't uh, at least a little bit inciting by neglect or inciting by not not making a very strong statement to the contrary um you know i don't believe that he's that there's a lot of malicious intent there but i think there's a lot of strat strategic play and he knew to a large extent what he was doing uh, would you you would not have banned trump i know but at what point would you would you say you know twitter would have had the right to intervene at least 
Well, if Twitter thinks it has the right to intervene on what Trump said, and let's not forget that Trump, the one of the tweets that Twitter removed was Trump actively calling for peace and calm. If they yes. think they have the right to act on Trump's tweets, then they have to remove the Democrats and the BLM activists and the Antifa activists who use their platform for four years to organize deliberately violent riots. And I'm talking about um, activists who were saying to bring Molotov cocktails to throw into cop cars to kill cops um, and to burn yeah. public buildings and to destroy the American Republic. That's what these people have been using their platform for. And the Democrat mayors were kneeling and endorsing these movements financially. Um, and Twitter itself put on the black Twitter bird to support them. So if they're going to start saying they're, they're intending to remove people for a riots, then they have to do it equally. And that's part of their role as a platform. They're not allowed to apply um, their terms and conditions politically. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to argue that it was against the platform law, there's been no evidence that they actually considered that sort of activity against their against their terms and conditions. It has been a completely political removal um, my view on social media and free speech is that speech is only dangerous when you start to silence certain parts of a community. So while ever there can be the rackets of debate, speech is not dangerous. Actions are dangerous. And one of the biggest problems our society has is that we've stopped punishing actions properly. People can commit serious crimes and they, they don't even get sent to jail anymore. So if we were punishing crimes properly and actions properly, speech would not be an issue. Um, yeah. And the focus on penalising speech has done us nothing but harm and caused more civil unrest and more violence than if we were allowed to speak freely. So you watch what happens now. They've turned Trump into a martyr. And America still has more than half the population who are now furious and being actively silenced by the world's biggest tech companies. That is not going to end with a peaceful solution. Um, and silencing them is the worst possible um, avenue that Silicon Valley could have taken. It's ridiculous, um, yeah. and I do think I do agree. I think that um, there is going to be enough support on the Democrat side. There'll be a couple of conservative-leaning Democrats um, that you'll be able to sort of swing over into the you know in the Senate, uh, and you'll have some on the on in the House now where they have a reduced majority. Um, I don't think big tech should be breathing anything near a sigh of relief here, um, especially if they continue to behave this way. Well, once politicians believe they control big tech, they will continue to manipulate big tech for their own ends, um, including beyond what big tech is prepared to do. And they'll work that out too late. I mean, it's the same story as all of our all of our socialist upheavals in history revolve around censorship and the manipulation of the people in control of the print, every single one of them. And today we don't have printing presses, we've got social media. Yeah. And so you should be looking at this in the, in the historical, con uh, um, historical context of this is another... Um, left-wing uprising that has taken control of the press. And we all know how these end, and it's never good. All right, that's sobering food for thought. Thank you. <laughs> it's, a very <laughs> it's a very serious problem, and I really worry about the next year ahead, Damien. Yeah, I was trying to be a little bit optimistic there, but I think that we I, – I don't – I personally don't think that big tech should be thinking that they've won this little game yet. I think there's going to be a lot to come. Well, um, it might help you to know, Damien, we still have the law on our side. So if there is a politician prepared to hold these uh, companies to account, the laws are still good. The laws of our country still work. Um, so we can resolve this in the courts if anyone has the guts to do it. And the other thing is Australia doesn't need to 
sit back and wait for the United States. I mean, we can lead the way as we've done on many other issues. Oh, yeah, so. but did you see my favourite? What's his name? Christian Porter. Oh, the first thing he, The first thing he says is, because he's just like, this is what's hilarious. The Liberal Party have just realised that their own careers are on the line now and that they could be removed by Silicon Valley operating on, in a political sphere. So they didn't care about their, their voters being silenced for years. Now it's on their doorstep. They've suddenly freaked out. And Christian Porter's first reaction was, oh, we shouldn't let big tech control speech. The government should be in control of speech. And you're like, oh, you completely missed the point. No I'm one sorry. should be in charge of speech. I'm starting That's to worry. Yeah, yeah. I'm starting to worry a lot about the Liberal Party not being very liberal at the moment. Yeah, he went, he went straight to let's control all speech. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, well, this is the thing about big government. Big government serves itself and ultimately, oh. uh, and it just continues to grow and grow and grow and make policies to make itself stronger, more powerful and bigger. And that's why we have to keep a watch on it from the outside to make sure that big governments, the government stays small, uh, as small as possible, and only doing what uh, is absolutely uh, necessary for government to do. Here's right. to freedom, Damien. Here's to freedom. Carry on the fight, my friend. We'll uh, we'll talk more throughout 2021. We've got some changes coming up, which we've spoken about already on the show uh, next week. So we won't see you next week, but um, in the future, we will be seeing quite a bit of you. So um, thanks again, Alexandra, and uh, let's let's uh, let's enjoy the new year and see how the fight continues. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs> And finally, on the show this week, I just wanted to uh, finish up with a clip from an excellent interview between Fox's Tucker Carlson and Tulsi Gabbard, the Democrat congresswoman from Hawaii, uh, who ran in the Democratic primaries for president last year. Gabbard says the big tech monopolies are very dangerous and they have to be broken up. I think the important thing is that we do this through legislative changes and reforms, uh, not through throwing Molotov cocktails and, and having riots. Right. And this is where exactly. all of us come into play, that we as voters, we need to make sure that we are choosing leaders who are motivated by serving the American people, upholding our constitutional freedoms and, and, and upholding our democracy uh, more than being motivated by selfish interests and how do I please my big tech monopoly donors. I don't understand why more people aren't outraged by censorship. If Nancy Pelosi was shut down, censored, silenced, erased from the internet tomorrow, I don't care for Nancy Pelosi's views. I would swear as God watches, I would defend her. Trump, whatever you think of what he said, some of it I don't like, everybody, everybody, this is great, I support this. People who should, Ro Khanna, who's like a very smart guy, He's, a, he's in favor of censorship. Like, what is this? It's, it's really disheartening uh, to see how people are so inward looking at, at only supporting the voices of those who agree with them rather than recognizing yes. the country that our founders envisioned for all of us. And, you, as you know, we've talked about this before. As a soldier, this is something that I take to heart in a very deep way, like every other service member, that we take an oath to uphold our Constitution, to, to support and defend it, which includes supporting the freedom of speech of every single person in this right. country, whether we agree with that speech or not, whether that speech offends us or not. That is at the heart 
of this country and who we are as Americans. And we all must stand up uh, and support that and make sure that we pressure our leaders to do the same. Amen. Uh, Otherwise, what are people dying for? I I couldn't agree more. That is Tucker Carlson from Fox News speaking to Tulsi Gabbard, the the Democrat from Hawaii there. Uh, That wraps up our show for episode 18 of The Other Side Australia. It's uh, it's been fantastic. I'm super excited about what the rest of the year's got in store for us. Very excited that as of next week, we will be changing format. The show will be a bit shorter, um, around about 20 to 30 minutes. And uh, we'll be on video. Um, if you want to look, if you want to watch, you can watch. You don't have to. <laughs> you can still just be a listener on the podcast channels. That's perfectly fine. Um, so we will be uh, making that transition next week, as I said. Uh, and then later on, there's going to be some more announcements. Um, I'll be able to tell you a little bit more in a couple of weeks about the other shows uh, that will be coming out as we uh, join forces with the Discernible Group, become part of the Discernible Group. Um, we will still be available on our own platforms. We'll still be available on the Good Source platform for those of you who listen to us on the Good Source, another great platform. Uh, don't forget, Good Source is spelled S A U C E. And also um, remember that Discernible is spelled Able, A B L E, not I B L E. So it's Discernable. Uh, you can check Discernible out on Facebook uh, and YouTube, uh, as well as at uh, discernible.io. Um, and, and you'll see all the discernible programs and content uh, up there on the website if you want to listen or uh, watch anything uh, or read. They do do uh, written articles as well. Um, so anyway, we're going to have uh, a lot more to announce next week. As I said, it's going to be really hard not to find the show if you want to find the show. So we're still here for you. And uh, look forward to catching you next Friday. So you have a great week, eh?